0: This is the What Matters Most podcast. A 100% listener-supported program. And now, here is your host, Paul Samuel Dolman.
1: Welcome back to What Matters Most. Thank you to everyone around the world who tunes in. We appreciate you and the Patreons and all the people who write in and listen, scattered around the globe. Today, we have a wonderful guest who I have already have a crush on. I hope I don't embarrass her by saying that. She's just so wonderful. And she has written a beautiful book, really deep book that made me think. It's called Beautiful Trauma, ironically. An explosion, an obsession, and a new lease on life. It goes in some wonderful directions. It's such an honor to welcome all the way from London, Miss Rebecca Fogg. Thank you for coming on.
0: Thank you so much, Paul. I've really been looking forward to this.
1: Why did you end up in London, in England, and how did you become a dual citizen? I'm asking for a friend who might want to become an expat someday.
0: <laughs> uh, there are so many answers to that question, and I only know a few of them. Um, I had lived in New York City for a long time, and uh, I had reinvented myself many times, and uh, it had gotten to the point where I don't know if I knew it, precisely this clearly, but you know, my friends and I, our, our lives were headed off in different paths, they were raising families, and um, you know, everybody was working really hard, myself included, and um, I wasn't getting, I think, what I wanted out of my life, I wasn't living as fully as I wanted, and um, then not quite knowing, haven't having not quite put my finger on that problem And not knowing what to do next a um job opening came up out of the blue in london um in the company where i was working and it was one of those things where all of a sudden you're like "Uh uh-huh i didn't know the problem but that's the answer and so i interviewed for the job i got the job and i moved over and i haven't looked back and in terms of how do you become a citizen you hang on, and you hang on some more, and you look for a job, and then you look for another job, and then you get another visa, and then you get indefinite leave to remain, and then you apply, and paperwork, and citizenship, and it's just a lot of hanging on.
1: Well, if it involves getting a job, then I'm doomed right out of the gate, I think. <laughs>
0: Sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. It depends on the visa that you have. But uh, at the time that I was uh, applying, I needed a job anyway. And that was also the route to getting the visas I needed. So,
1: Well, as we talked about before I came on, I'm going to look at uh, Portugal. But the gold visa program now is like so formidably expensive. I might have to opt for the rust visa where you can kind of. (laughs) You mentioned New York City. You survived 9-11. Do you mind going back and sharing that so we get some context?
0: Yeah, sure, and uh, I count myself among many, many New Yorkers, absolutely, and they will all have their own stories. I was working at um, a company down in the World Financial Center at the time, and so For those of you who aren't familiar, excuse me, uh, for folks who aren't familiar with that area, it's the cluster of buildings that are right next to the World Trade Center site. So if you've ever seen pictures of the the twin towers, and there's a tower with a pyramid top, and that's the building that I worked in. So... I got up that morning, I hopped on, I think it was the 2-3 train, and I got off at the World Trade Center um, stop, which was right under one of the towers, and um, went upstairs to the lobby of the building, as I always did, and with hundreds and hundreds of other commuters, we crossed the plaza, we crossed the bridge, and we went into our building. And as I walked out onto, I believe it was the... 37th and 41st floor at the time and I walked out on the floor and heard this tremendous noise the sound of you know metal crushing against something and you know a bit of a quaver and you know all the possible answers flip through your head and then all of a sudden I looked right and saw what is you know famously depicted as everything falling out of the towers so papers and debris. And um, with many of my colleagues, we rushed over to the window and we saw uh, the devastation wreaked by that first plane. And it was not far from us because we were right across the street and we were on the 41st floor. And I think the first plane hit somewhere in the 60, you know, 60 floor area. So we thought it was an accident and um because how else could something so terrible happen? And uh and then shortly thereafter, obviously there was the second um plane hit, and we got out and there were people, you know, that's a long story short, there were people who twigged what was happening sooner than the rest of us, you know, this is not an accident. And um, so we, you know, we exited the building. Um, you could have heard a pin drop, really. And, um, you know, I just I made my way home with many, many other people. And that's the very shortened version. And as I said, um, everybody in Manhattan will have some kind of a story and they're all meaningful and important.
1: Rebecca, do you remember some of the things that went through your heart and your mind that day as all of that just came, no pun intended, crashing down?
0: Yeah, so... I'll slow down here a little bit because I will reflect um you know one of the things one of the first things that went through my mind is my boyfriend at the time was an emergency room doctor and so when we were looking up at the tower after that first plane hit it my first thought was I'm going to call him and let him know because he's on call he's not due in but he's going to be needed and that's what I did and you know he's like right I'm you know take care of yourself I'm I'm headed out And then um, somebody else who had been involved, another colleague who had been involved in the World Trade bombings, or rather had been in the World Trade Centers during the bombings, and I think it was 93. Said, hey, everybody call your families because the cell grid is going to get overwhelmed and you're not, you know, you might not be able to tell them that you're safe for a long time after this. And so we all ran back to our desks. And I remember calling each member of my family and saying, you're going to hear about this in a second, this terrible accident, I'm safe. And then I remember running down the stairs with, you know, thousands of other employees. And I remember I did something like 37 floors in seven minutes, I counted. And uh, I remember thinking, I'm really glad I told them that I was safe. Because if I'm not, it'll be a really long time before they know that. And at least they'll feel good now.
1: Did you go into shock? Did you cry?
0: Mm, Really good question. Hadn't thought about that. I didn't cry. There were moments when people did for sure. So I remember walking north, taking a very slow slow long walk north to my apartment. And of course, you know, everybody was out in the streets and they were all looking south to see what would happen. I wasn't looking back because I remembered seeing bodies falling out. I didn't want to witness that um, almost as much for just a sense of propriety in a way and a, a sense of respect, but also, um, you know, it's it's an awful thing to see. And um but, you know, you could see, I could see the expressions of the people looking backward, and I could almost tell what was happening behind me by the expressions on their faces. So there were there were certainly tears there. But, you know, one of the things that I've learned in the studies about my book is there's, there's no typical way, there's no right way, there's no wrong way to respond to these things. So I think we often have a lot of ideas about what one, you know, how upset someone should be and how they should show it. And uh, I've just learned that there's, you know, that's simply not the case, that everybody expresses it in different ways. But I do feel that I was definitely in a, you know, I was in a state of sorts where um, I described in the book, I noticed later that I have this thing that I think of as my morning mask, uh, you know, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, where my face is sort of stiff and my jaw is stiff and my eyes are just focused. And it's this, you know, it really is kind of a protective mask. And I realized that I was, you know, walking through Manhattan with just this sense of, you know, grief and not knowing what to make of it. And so, um, yeah, just just the witnessing of it. And uh, I think with experiences like this, they continue to mean different things to us throughout time and we learn about ourselves through them and um you know it means one thing at the moment it means different things later so yeah it was a very i was very sober i was very you know maybe stunned was a good way to describe it um i think that's probably a safe way to describe how i felt at the time um yeah stunned, perplexed. Um, you know, you think if this can happen, you know, what else am I wrong about? You know? <laughs> um, but but you're not really thinking that deeply at the moment, you know, it's it's sort of like if you've been uh I don't know. Thrown off thrown off a boat without a life preserver, you know, you're not spending a lot of time thinking about gosh, you know, how fast do objects fall, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I wonder what the temperature of this water is. You know, you're just trying to figure out which way is up and you know, which way do I move my body and what should I be concentrating on to to get through this?
1: Thank you for being brave and going back. It's such a life altering event. You can just tell you can't go through something like that. You adapt. It's like it changes uh, your trajectory throughout time and space moving forward. Like if it, you were moving through space and another object hit it, your whole trajectory would be different, not better or worse. But it would be undeniable that you cannot go through what you just talked about and, and continue on as, you know, carry on business as usual. There's a trauma in all that. And I mean, we still see people dealing with the trauma of of it who and people passing A friend of mine was very close to Donna Summer, who was very close to the downtown area where it happened. And she died of lung cancer, never smoked. And she was convinced, like many who did die, that it was from the toxins in the air that the afterward. It's really sad how it expanded out, right? You know, this cloud of destruction.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And just everybody in Manhattan one way or the other and and you know people many miles away and still impacted because it is just it's mind-bending it is the shattering of expectations it is um you know it's just astonishing um but one of the the companions to that uh, a lot of people in Manhattan I suspect would tell you the same thing you know the way people came together afterwards and um you know, the kinds of conversations you could have. Um, you know, we in my workplace for years after that, when you met someone new within the company that you had known was in the company at the time, you'd say, and where were you that day? It was just how it was just how you got to know people. So where were you on 9/11? And you know, every New Yorker from that era has their story. And uh there is something I personally find very uniting about sharing our our stories of adversity you know sharing them appropriately when someone is ready to hear it but to be able to say you know yes i too have you know experienced that moment where i didn't know what to do next and and it was you know it was frightening or it was devastating and you know when we share those moments uh, i think we become closer and more empathetic and and better able to help each other and you know hopefully live well but obviously that's not saying that there is a silver lining to every trauma. i I don't believe that. But in the aftermath of of nine eleven, you also saw a lot of um, a lot of really, you know, wonderful responses.
1: There's not a silver lining, but I think you're doing a pretty good job of taking the things that have happened to you and trying to learn and then share and make a difference in a lot of other lives. And I think the book will definitely do that. And of course, you know, as if you didn't have one explosion in your life, which is, should be like. <laughs> I know. I mean, good lord, what were, you, what did you do in your last life? I got to look back to the. Uh, we have, we need a reincarnation expert on here.
0: Yeah, this is ironic laughter, but yes, <laughs> it's insane.
1: And ladies and gentlemen, if you thought that was the main event, let's go now to the second explosion. No, I don't mean Building Seven. We don't want to stir that up. Uh, what happened after that my god and hopefully there's not a third explosion where you know where are we going right. i never felt comfortable with rebecca in a room i don't know why i was always
0: yeah well my friends are always like you know step away from the appliance at least while we're here
1: modern day angela lansbury you show up and a bunch of people end up dead <laughs>
0: Oh dear. Um, So the second, uh, the second one was uh, much more localized. That was in my Brooklyn apartment and I was up late working as had often been the case. So went in in the middle of the night to brush my teeth before Brett, excuse me, to brush my teeth before bed and turned on the tap and nothing but air came out like a cappuccino maker, you know, shh. I'm thinking, oh, that's that's strange. And you know, you live in a one-bedroom apartment in New York. It's okay if your sink doesn't work because you got another one. But if your toilet doesn't work, you know, that's going to take a while. It's going to be a problem. And so, barely thinking, I lean over from where I'm standing at the sink to flush the toilet. And in New York, uh, anyone who's spent time there will know that a lot of um, people have what would be described as a pressure toilet. So it's not the kind that has the cistern on the back where. You know, a tank full of water uses gravity, all of that. I have to get into mechanics because people want to know and they never ask. And so the toilet exploded and sent fragments of porcelain through the air, uh, hit, you know, the ceiling, blew all the tiles off the walls. And uh, one of them slashed through the inside of my right wrist and cut it to the bone, partially amputating it. So everything that I needed to close my hand was cut, uh, in addition to the major nerve for the hand and an artery for the hand.
1: How did you survive that? That sounds like where you just bleed out.
0: So in the moment, again, this is, you know, it's a survival moment. So it's instinct, um, for for lack of a better description of of what's going on, you know, your brain is not letting you think slowly you know cognition um you know oh what should i do next it's trying to react and doing you know everything that it knows how to do based on evolution based on what it knows for the moment so the first instance i'm just trying to figure out what's going on because my my thinking my you know conscious thinking has slowed way down so i'm looking at the inside of my wrist and i'm going huh know that's that's kind of weird not used to seeing the inside of bodies and then i think oh that's not good you're not supposed to be able to see the inside of that part of the body and then i'm like wait a second that's happening to me that's my arm that's my wound and of course this must all be going on in nanoseconds but you know it felt very slow to me at the time and then I start processing and it's like, okay, what's going on here? What are the implications to me? How do I get out of this? And so I think, ah, well, I live alone and I am bleeding a lot. You know, the blood was pumping against the wall. I could hear it slapping against the floor. You know, this is an arterial bleed. And so I'm thinking, all right, well, uh, this is life-threatening. I could bleed out and so I better try to save myself because nobody else is going to be able to do that for me. And, you know, I had these visions of various, you know, how do I need to do that? Well, I need to stop the bleeding. I need to call 911. Problem is, I'm not sure I know how to stop the bleeding. I've never done this before. And, you know, what if I try and I fail and um, I pass out before I've called 911? All right, then I'm going to call 911 first. So I, this is pre-smartphones. So I've got to make a dash for the tabletop phone in the next room. And so I'm essentially walking around, you know, spraying the walls. Like, you know, I'm running into the bathroom, sorry, running from the bathroom to the bedroom and, you know, spraying everything in blood. And I pick up the phone and I dial, dial 911. And thank goodness the emergency operator answers immediately. And while I'm talking to her, then I am trying to figure out how to stop the bleeding. Uh, a lot of different things go through my head. I end up in the kitchen pulling dirty dish towels off of the oven and cramming them into the wound. And one by one, they are instantly saturated. And I realize that actually, I'm just going to have to keep cramming them in and, you know, binding them. And eventually, I think it was four dish towels and putting my arm over my head and applying direct pressure while trying to keep this blood slippery uh desktop phone on between my shoulder and my ear and then i've got to go wake up the neighbors because nobody's going to be able to let ems into the front door and i'm still thinking you know what if i pass out before i you know can let them in so um it was pretty harrowing but you know, part of the brain's flight flight program. Somehow, miraculously, I did not feel fear until EMS arrived. Somehow, miraculously, I did not feel pain until I got to the hospital. Um, you know, it's possible I also don't remember the pain. Our memories of trauma can be very mixed up. Um, but that's that's how I got out of there. And um, I was very, very lucky that the paramedics knew to take me to Bellevue Hospital, which is where they had the expertise to cope with my uh, severity of injury.
1: And that sets you on a course to deeply discover about trauma. Will you and the scientific stuff about it? And I feel like society in general is just finally catching up to so much of what is going on with trauma and how it's influenced everything in our childhoods moving forward. What it does to the brain. And how I've seen people now, I notice, who kind of go into sort of a, they react, and you realize they're being triggered from something a long time ago, and then suddenly they look like a little girl or boy by their body language. Could you talk about some of the important things that you learned?
0: I think the most important thing that I learned, or the thing that has mattered most to me, and you know what what's going to help other people or what resonates with them will be different, you know, depending on who you are and what your circumstances are. But one of the things that was most uh, mind boggling and yet made sense to me was the notion of just how much our mental and emotional experiences are the product of everything. So in the medical world, they talk about biological, psychological, social, and environmental factors. And so, you know, it's, it's easy to think that, okay, there's a particular kind of event that could happen that is going to cause trauma, but there's nothing that's intrinsically traumatic. People just, you know, something that might be really traumatic for one person might not be traumatic for the other person. And, you know, the reason is because, we all grow up differently. We have different, uh, you know, body chemistry and different genetics and, you know, we're trained and prepared or educated for different things. So there are many, many different factors, um, that determine what, you know, causes that overall experience for us. And that really helped me because I started to understand, um, I suppose just how much is beyond our control. And that doesn't mean that we, you know, uh, that doesn't mean that I don't feel a responsibility to do whatever I can to heal, to help, all of that. But in a way, it took a big load off me to not be trying to fix things that I could not fix. So understanding how long it can take the body to heal. And that the best thing I can do is, you know, get good rest and get good nutrition and things like that. Um, that uh, to be more empathetic to other people and also to myself when, you know, when you have terrible days, you know, when, when I'm walking around my apartment, you know, streaming tears, streaming nose, can't calm myself down because it's a bad day. You know, that was something that would happen in, in the, you know, weeks following recovery, you know, for a while you're okay, and then there's the terrible day. And instead of, you know, thinking that I should have it all together, you know, that you got this culture, and it's, well, sometimes we don't, and it's not all within our control. And so I think that was the beginning to my understanding, you know, no, just knowing that there are so many different factors, that are involved in, you know, how we end up experiencing things, how we end up responding to things, um, how capable will you, how, how capable we are in different situations, you know, we all have different talents or different abilities. And that just, that just helped me, um, you know, know what to focus on, and maybe gave me a little bit more of a sense of ease, that it isn't all up to me. And of course, that, you know, makes for, it's still very worrying because, you know, it turns out ambiguity is also super painful, (laughs) but, you know, it's hard to say, you know, what's worse than ambiguity or feeling like you're supposed to personally be able to regrow a new nerve, you know, by working at it every day. (laughs) Um, I'm going to, I'm going to choose ambiguity. So I think that, that the notion of biopsychosocial environmental products, um, you know, helps me understand that, that I can choose my areas of focus carefully and try to accept a lot of the other ones Um, also to be really empathetic and understand when other people don't respond to something the way maybe I would or maybe the way I had hoped they would Um, and it also has a lot of societal implications you know there's a tremendous focus today in medicine in social policy in activism and I think in in people's own individual work about how to understand the, you know, social and environmental factors that make people more resilient or make it harder for them to be healthy or to live fully. So I think that was probably the biggest concept.
1: How big was community fellowship, sharing, leaning as a factor in your recovery? I like that you kind of scoffed a bit at that. Oh, just suck it up and be strong. (laughs) You need some of that, but I mean, this American ethos of, you know, you let your leg blown off. Just walk it off, and just to bury everything. How big was community for you personally in healing?
0: Oh, that's a great question, Paul. It it was it was massive, and it, you know these are such good questions. <laughs> um, so you you know you have a lot of different communities, and or I had a lot of different communities, and so you know I lived alone at the time, and so one of the things that you know you think okay great there's not this you know there's not this person who's living there whose job I am now so so how do we do this and um you know my sister was absolutely brilliant in the in the early innings you know she just took me home and she just did my life for me for you know a couple of weeks and was incredibly helpful and then you know next it was my mom staying with me for a bit in brooklyn but then she had to go and take care of her husband so then i went there for a while and then when i came back you know, it was my friend's shift. And at the recommendation of, um, my psychoanalyst at the time, um, my friend, rather my psychoanalyst recommended to me, why don't you see if your friends can come up with a visiting schedule? And that hadn't occurred to me because it's not something that I suppose were taught can I back up and do that again? Um, so it it wasn't you know, I know I can ask my friends for help, but what about when you need sustained help for a while? you know you need a system and a system that is planning to to address what comes up for you and that's a little bit different than a one-off like, hey, can you help me hang these shelves and so you know, I was stumped. I didn't quite know how that was going to work. And my psychoanalyst at the time told me that she and some of her friends had worked out a visiting schedule for someone in her life who had me, you know, a, a sustained period of need. And that was just this totally new idea for me. Like, wow, what if we could, you know, take all these people I love and what if they could come together and form a system and so, you know, my my BFF Jen did that, and she emailed just a whole bunch of people, and she came back to me a day later, and she said, you know, it's oversubscribed, there are more people who want to help you than you want to see. <laughs> and I was just overwhelmed with relief, and I was so deeply touched that, you know, all of these friends had, uh, you know, full on lives at the moment, you know, they're raising small children, or, you know, maybe they're going through some kind of a health crisis, or it's just busy New York life. But there are so many more people out there who want to help than you might imagine. And again, I think it's part, you know, it's partly this American culture of, you know, you got this and stand on your felt you know, pull yourself up your by your bootstraps. I I wonder if it makes people think that there aren't others out there willing to help them. And that's just not true. And it doesn't mean that we always get all the help that we need or want uh, or should have. But I do feel that so many people want to help. And as my friend Jen said, she's like, they want to help. Why would you, you know, you would help them if they asked you, Why, why won't you give them a chance? I'm like, all right, well, I need it and they want to give it. So yeah, let's do this. And so they visited, you know, had a different person about every three days, which was the frequency I chose, it would be almost too overwhelming to see someone more recent, you know, more often than that. And so every few days, somebody was knocking at the door, I wouldn't even know who was on the shift that night. And they'd walk in with a bag of groceries and, you know, make me dinner and, and say, what else can I do? Do you need laundry? Do you need garbage taken out? And, um, but, you know, there was that practical help. And then it's what you were saying, it's the community so much of the care in that was the sitting down and having them listen and just letting me tell them what was going on for me right now and having them not flinch not shy away not be scared of it um you know that empathy that was the that was the medicine you know the garbage was important to take out but it could have waited you know um And that was wonderful. And so, yeah, the community is tremendous. And also, it wasn't just loved ones. That's the other thing I want to emphasize. And something that I will know going into, you know, some other ambivalent, sorry, uh, ambiguous crisis where I don't know what to do. It's not just the people you know who can help. Um, So many neighbors and colleagues and strangers would help. They saw need and they would help. And that is, you know, part of the reason the book is called Beautiful Trauma. It's the beauty I couldn't possibly have imagined, but now I know that it can be there. And um, community is is hugely important.
1: How has all of this expanded you spiritually?
0: So what do you mean by spiritually? And I'm not being evasive. Um, I definitely have my own ideas, but what do you mean by spiritually?
1: Well, tell me about your ideas, because it is kind of an ineffable definition. I don't mean religiously. You go to mass, give more money.
0: I think all of these experiences have made me really want to spend my time in that, existen- you know, in an existential space where you're as aware as you possibly can be about how things are and what it means. Uh, what more would I say? Um, I started to meditate maybe in 2015. So that's maybe six, six or more years after the accident. And but I connect it to the accident, I connect it to 9-11 um, because I think that was when I started to meditate and you know learn a little bit about Buddhism that's when i i finally thought oh my goodness here here is a here is a practice that actually tells me how to live and i don't mean in a dictatorial sense i mean here is a practice that knows what life is like here is a practice that knows the helpful ways my mind can go the hurtful ways my mind can go how i need to be sustained or you know it gave me vocabulary it gave me imagery that I didn't feel like I was adopting them I felt like it was already explaining what I knew to be true but didn't have words for and didn't have practices for and so in terms of like how the accident changed me spiritually it was very much um, you know I mentioned in the book this thing that my neighbor called the death club and you know she had said I bumped into her you know a few weeks after the well right probably two months after the accident or something and it was the first time we were seeing each other after my accident and, you know, she had wonderful warm words of encouragement. And then she said, well, welcome to the death club. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, we've both seen death close up and now we're never going to see anything else the same way. And her father had, um, you know, just gone through a big health crisis and um, I believe was in hospice. And, and I knew exactly what she meant. As soon as she said it, it, it was that. So I think spiritually it's this, you know we're all mortal we know that but it doesn't feel real um you know we have to go through life with some thin veil of delusion because you can't live every second knowing this could be your last or at least i can't maybe some people can but it doesn't seem a fruitful way for me to live so somehow you have to do this impossible juxtaposition of it could change or end on a dime and yet we make plans and we have hopes and we suffer because we think the suffering might not end. And so there are all of these things that happen. And there are these things that cannot be resolved, you know, that can't be resolved, we are mortal, and we need to have ambitions, or, you know, we want, we feel, we need to feel progress. And so that notion of the death club, in my mind is it's, you know, let's say it's the, uh, it is the temple that I joined, or the spiritual, you know, it's the church that I joined, just the the recognizing that there is that really difficult coexistence, and really bonding with people who understand that. You know, uh, I later worked for London's Aero Ambulance over here in the UK, and they understand that. You know, it's it's the people who understand um, the impossibility of reconciling those things, and yet the necessity that we that we live that way. So spiritually, I suppose admitting that you know, I can stop fighting it. And there's, you know, there's, there's a a little bit of freedom in this sense of, you know, not fighting what we can't control. It comes back to the biopsychosocial, you know, all of that. So I think that maybe the spiritual, the spiritual process or the spiritual um, leap that I made was just recognizing, okay, fundamentally, there is this in uh um you know insoluble challenge and and there it is I'm not going to change that there it is and it doesn't mean that I don't suffer that's for sure but I everything since then has probably been more about you know being aware of how I'm reacting to that in daily life and that's where the science studies help as well you know understanding much more about um, you know, and obviously I'm not a clinician. I am not a, I'm not an expert, but the understanding that I take away from it is the, you know, there are um, neurological influences that bring, you know, that come to the fore on a daily basis as well, you know, so maybe decades ago when I was having, you know, a blue day or something, I might think, well, this must be because the job is bad, or this must be because I screwed up on something, you know, last week. And, you know, now I can understand it could just be, this is what your body is doing today. It could just be, this is what your mind is doing today. And not everything has to have a cause. Maybe you can just sit with it. And I know that's a lot of, uh, That's a lot of um, buzzwords, I suppose, but I do find a lot of them useful personally. Just the the notion of, you know, sitting with it doesn't mean you have to like it, doesn't mean you know to do with it, but fighting it definitely doesn't work for me.
1: And meditation is so life-changing. It has been for me and just about everybody I've ever talked to or interviewed and just trying to be in the moment, stay in the now. I find my mind racing ahead, trying to plan what's for dinner nine months from now?
0: <laughs> oh my gosh. Wow. I hadn't thought to worry about that, but maybe I will now.
1: <laughs> yeah. All right. Or it plays, what if something bad happens? Yeah. Like you ran out of money. Okay. And then, uh, and you lost your ability to speak and walk. Oh, okay. Didn't have a phone. Wow. We're playing. What if something bad happens in the middle of the night? Can we sleep? I'll tell you what, I'll play this game with you, but get. let me get a cup of coffee or two in May and then we'll, really have some fun with it although i do play it with other people when they abstractly throw out these horrible scenarios i'll say something that's thousand times worse and they'll look at me like what are you insane i said no i i thought we were playing what if something bad happens i was trying to win <laughs>
0: Right. Well, it's the thing that you can recognize when somebody else is doing it. And yet you can sit in the privacy of your own home and be like, you know, well, what if I screw up this presentation and then I get fired and then I can't find another job because there's another global financial crisis. And then what if, what if, what if, if?" you know, and if you heard a friend doing that, you'd be like, oh, come on, honey, like, come on, take a step back. But, you know, we'll let ourselves
1: do it prodigiously the human mind, I just had somebody very generously say, oh, do you want to come for brunch? And I said, oh, that's a lot of work. And then they talked about how it would be a lot of work. They're going through a lot of stuff, this and that. And I suggested based on that, why don't we just go to this super nice restaurant over here that everyone loves? And then I watched her mind for five or six (laughs) minutes because I was looking at the clock just spin. (laughs) It had nothing to do with me standing there i think that place is noisy i don't know i haven't been in a while but you know i've been trying to be careful with COVID. but i need to get out more although you know i stay in my weekend time's sacred it'll really break up the day if i leave the house and then i just i didn't didn't say a word and then it just somehow the plane landed and it's like oh okay would one be okay and i said yes one yeah (laughs) but i just thought the human mind and i watch mine too it'll just suddenly mouth off about shit. I'm like, what? Shut the fuck up. My God. It's
0: fascinating. Yeah. Well, you're like, all right, so what job is it doing? You know, you're like, okay, now that I've seen that I'm doing that, and I know the impossibility of solving problems that may or may not happen 30 years from now, why am I doing that? And, you know, and then that's fun for a little while. And then, you know, you can also just sit down and be like, never going to know. How about I take a
1: walk? (laughs) Anytime that friend was around, I said, I'm going to go for a swim. They'd always say, watch out for sharks. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks. Thanks for that. You know, I had planned not to watch out for sharks. (laughs) And then the mind goes, was that a warning? You know, it's funny. Jim had said, watch out for sharks. Who knew? I'm like, oh my God. At this point, I almost want to be eaten if only to silence my own mind.
0: (laughs) But then when you find out that everybody all right maybe it's not everybody because i don't happen to get to be into everybody's minds but when you know that so many of us have that inner dialogue or monologue and and then then you know that's back to community where it's like okay you know that's that's a little bit of belonging that's a little bit of you know it's it's a little bit of a relief to know that i haven't invented this particular way of going through life and etc
1: I guess I should ask a quick side question. Was Has Brexit been traumatic for the people of England now that they realize they made a titanic mistake?
0: <laughs> you may be surprised to know that I can't speak for every single person in England. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I'm going to say that's another one of those things where it's like, well, it happened. And we can try to figure out all of the different causes and we can try to figure out all of the different, uh, all of the different, you know, future implications, but actually we're, you know, we're just going to have to live with it.
1: So you would liken it to having a limb blown off? (laughs) Don't worry, you're not going to get fired.
0: (laughs) (laughs) they <laughs> like, what's going on? Okay. So the main, main problem for me, I had a passport. I became a citizen and I was a citizen of Europe and now I'm not. So, you know, if I ever wanted to just disappear and, you know, lose myself in some crumbling down French farmhouse that nobody knows where it is and I can buy it for 25 quid and, you know, fix it up and apprentice myself to the local baker, you know, when I'm 70, um, I can't do that now.
1: Actually, you can. You can hide out back in my farmhouse. and
0: You have a French farmhouse?
1: No, but that sort of sounds like my plan, and that's why I'm going to Europe, too.
0: Oh, okay. But if you start the bakery, then I can apprentice with you, but then you'd have to know how.
1: You will be the baker, and I will be the taster.
0: (laughs) Okay. Uh, I was going to say, I didn't work hard enough at baking during COVID to um, make bread worth your tasting, but if you give me some years... I can I can try to improve on it.
1: It's just easier to go down at the end of the block and buy the 4th generation baker's bread. That's what I always say. It's like the lunch, let's just go to the good place and order. And seriously, the people listen all over the world. I love the audience. We're all traumatized. Being human being is traumatizing. I think that's what the Buddha tried to say when he said all of life is suffering. If someone's in a hard place right now, you've been in some very hard places. You were generous to share so openly. And we just happened to be sitting there. It was the three of us. What would you say to her or him or wherever they were in the world? since as different as we are, we're more the same. And if we're suffering, we're even more the same.
0: Uh, I you know, and I do wish we were in the same room doing that. Um one of the things that helped me most was when people just sat and listened and looked me in the eye. and And, as I said, you know, weren't, weren't afraid. So, um, so I'll have brief advice for maybe what we can do for the people around us, but for, for the person who is, is going through adversity, I I would be listening really hard to figure out what they, you know, what they maybe wanted advice on, because it isn't helpful to get advice when you, when you are not in a place, when it means that someone isn't listening to you, but all of those caveats aside, um, you know, I would say, that um, don't be afraid to ask for help nobody gets through life without needing significant amounts of help at many times of our life you know we are babies we are elderly we go through illnesses we go through um you know bereavement nobody gets through life without help there's no shame in asking for it and as my best friend said and people like to give it people like to give it so don't be afraid to ask for it um that i think that's one of the most important things i would say um you know for some people you know uh, some great advice i got that worked for me was learn as much as you can about your you know let's say this is an injury or if it's a health thing um for me it helped to learn about it because then i could understand more about how hard my body was trying to work to get better and that made it easier for me to cope with the unknown um what it also meant was, and, you know, some people will want to, you know, learn their way out of it and, and others that will be overwhelming or that won't be comforting for me, it was. But one thing I would say is, you know, don't be afraid to ask your healthcare providers questions. You know, a lot of them are working in extremely stressful environments and very busy environments and they're rushing in and out of the room, but they want you to do well. They want you to be well. And if you understand what the treatment is going to be, why they're doing it, when they're doing it, you know, whatever questions you might have, I think maybe that's the point. There's not a fixed thing that you should know, but if you have questions about what's going to happen next or what's going on that your healthcare provider has the expertise to answer, ask them, ask them. You know, don't, don't worry about do they have the time ask them so that you can move forward with the information that that you know to do your best at your part in recovery or just to relieve your um just to relieve any stress that you might have over an answer that you don't know you know there can be a lot of anxiety about what's going to happen and sometimes we're anxious about something that isn't a problem you know i was worried in the er early on am i going to need a blood transfusion you know so i asked they might not have offered that information Because they wouldn't have known I was thinking about it, but I was concerned and I asked and the answer was no. And that was a relief. So I think that's, you know, in some, don't be afraid to ask for help. Don't be afraid to ask for questions. Don't be afraid to ask questions and learn if that is a way that, you know, gives you a sense of purpose and gives you a sense of understanding that helps you do your work. You've been listening to the What Matters Most podcast, a 100% listener-supported program. If you feel inspired, please go to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com backslash whatmattersmost and join our family. So until the next time, stay inspired and in the light.